Sometimes life is difficult and you just need a hand to lift you up. The Bible is full of those helping hands, but how do you access them? How do you apply them? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Vince Lombardi once said, The price of success is hard work, dedication to the job at hand, and the determination that whether we win or lose, we have applied the best of ourselves to the task at hand. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And I'm Jonathan, and this podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Jonathan, what is the topic for today? Well, Rick, our question is, what does discipleship cost? And our theme text is found in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, what does discipleship cost? It is so easy to talk about following Jesus. After all, he came as our Savior, voluntarily sacrificed his life, and opened up the way to heaven for us. So why wouldn't you want to align yourself with someone who wipes away your sins and can give you eternity in the process? It's a no-brainer, right? Right. Um, Well, not exactly, actually. Turns out, being a disciple of Jesus is hard work that requires thought, action, and results. It is a conscious decision to be different, to be driven by a higher calling than you would naturally follow. Following Jesus in a selfie world is akin to being a nerdy kid on a football team. Okay, you have plenty to offer, but those around you just don't see your value. I mean, picture the nerdy kid, you know, the scrawny little kid, and they say, well, can you, can, um, can you tackle? And, you know, he pushes his glasses back up on his head and says, well, I can tackle your IT problems. You know, <laughs> can you block? Well, I can I can block viruses from your computer. I mean, he's got great value, but not in that environment. So and that's the thing about being a Christian in the world in which we live. Can a Christian thrive in a world that rewards evil? How do we know what to think, what to do and become to be sure we are truly following Jesus? Well, that's easy, figuring that out. Why? Because Jesus himself told us how to do the job. And Jonathan, there's nothing better than when you ask a question and Jesus gives you a direct answer. Oh, for sure. So we're going to start with that direct answer, but we want to start with a soundbite from a gentleman by the name of James Chapman. Uh, This was a TED Talk, and his talk was entitled, Create a Culture of Selflessness. So just uh, let's just drop into his creating this culture of selflessness. Pick them up! Get over here. If any man on this team falls down, you sprint and you pick him up. The great coach Jason Gillespie. So let me give you a little bit of background before you think that I'm crazy. My entire life, I've been playing basketball. Little League, 
middle school, high school, college, even some international. But the most influential coach I've ever had throughout the years was Coach Jason Gillespie. See, I played at a school called Bluefield College, a little small school about 45 minutes outside of Virginia Tech. But even though we were a small school, we had a lot of nationally recognized accolades. We led the nation in scoring. We beat three Division I teams my senior year. So he's, he's, he's going through his, his college experience. And again, being in a small school, the fact that any small school beats a Division I team anytime yeah, that's, that's huge. Yeah, that's news. Okay, <laughs> so you, and, and you know the interesting thing was his his screaming that pick him up. Anybody on this team falls down, you go pick him up. What has that got to do with discipleship? We will see. It has everything to do with real, true discipleship. And 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 I just thought that this was a great way to get started. It's that shock treatment of somebody yelling you pick him up. Come on, it, because there's an urgency. And I think that's the first thing. Okay, so now that we've got that basketball analogy brewing in the background, we're going to look at three parables of Jesus to identify three primary aspects of discipleship. Okay, but before those three, there is the attention-getting notice of what discipleship looks like. And Jonathan, it it's, it's, sounds funny to say, but Jesus was really good at a lot of things. Oh, of course. One of the things he was really good at was getting people's attention. But often, he did it in ways that you would say, what is he doing? Let's take a look. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35, but we're going to break it up, and we're just going to be looking at part of verse 25 right now, just the first few words. Now, large crowds were going along with him. Okay. Okay, so so how much commentary can there be about the idea of you got a large crowd and you think, okay, that's good, right? You want crowds. Jesus had a way with crowds. He sometimes fed them and he performed miracles. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? Oh, yeah. And then just a short time afterwards, he fed another 4,000. Okay, other times he challenged the crowds and he upset them. If you remember at the end of John chapter 6, uh, that's one example where he says, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be part of me. And it's like, and people are going away like, that's gross. Many left. Yeah, because, especially because they were Jewish, and to eat, to, to drink blood was specifically forbidden by the law. So they're going, what is he saying? So he had a way with crowds. Perhaps he saw that this crowd that was following him at the time of these three parables he saw that this crowd particularly needed to be thinned down to those who seriously wanted words from heaven. Maybe that's what he's doing, because what he says next is a real head-turner. So let's go back to the end of verse 25 and on to verse 26 of Luke 14. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So, hang on. Jesus says you have to hate your father and mother. That's what he said, Rick. He said you should hate your wife. Yep. And your children. That's what he said. Your brothers and your sisters. Hate even your own life, Rick. Uh, okay, so, I mean, you're saying, what is he doing? 
This is Jesus. This is the son of God. This is the preacher of love and mercy and kindness and compassion. Why would he say something so incredibly off base sounding harsh language being spoken by one who's looking for followers? Because remember, he's going around looking for followers. I don't know, Jonathan, but I wouldn't advise someone looking for followers telling, saying that to anybody. <laughs> You're not going to get good attention. You know, the ratings and the reviews are not going to be good. <laughs> so what is he doing? What is he saying? What does the word hate mean? Let's take a, let's take a look at that. Let's take a look. What does the, the, the word actually mean? Well, Rick, uh, it means to detest by, by extension to love less. Now, that makes sense, to oh, love less. Okay, but it does mean to detest. It does. Okay, but by extension, according to the Strong's literal dictionary of the Bible, it literally means by extension to love less. Now, this word, word does carry very varied shades of meaning, but it is generally a harsh word. Let's take a look at a few scriptures that give us the sense that this is something harsh, because what we don't want to do... You don't want to water down what Jesus is saying. You want to find the real level of impact that he's trying to give here. In Matthew 6, 24, that same word appears. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So hate the one, love the other, or hold to one and despise the other. That's a pretty harsh statement. Okay, you're not going to be equally happy with both. You're going to find a true loyalty in one direction or another because that's the way we're wired. So Jesus' own words in Matthew 6, the word hate is pretty strong there, isn't it? It is, indeed. And it's the same word, right? Yep, it is. Okay, Matthew 24, 9, again, Jesus' own words. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Okay, strong language. Same word, right? Yeah, you're going to be afflicted, you're going to be killed and hated by yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, and hated here, you really don't look at that and say, well, it means love less. <laughs> no, that one really goes along with detest, right, doesn't it? Right, so Jesus is using a hard hard word here. Now we're talking about discipleship, and he's looking at this big crowd that's following him, and this is what he tells him. Now look, we know that Jesus did not advocate hating your parents. We know that. He didn't advocate hating your family. I mean, he always spoke of keeping the commandments, and the commandments were about, uh, half of the commandments were about, you know, your respect for your family and those around you. Absolutely. I mean, also remember on the cross, what, what did he do in regards to his mother when he's hanging there on the cross? He, he appointed John to, to take care of her because of his responsibility, your mother. Uh, so he, he pointed to his, his disciple to take care of my mom. So obviously Jesus was not speaking in a literal sense because that's not what he lived. As a matter of fact, if we go a little bit further, we look at Matthew chapter 10, Verses 37 to 39, he's giving the same message, but it's in a much more understandable fashion. So we're going to go through this scripture, and we've got to figure out why was he so harsh in this one instance. But Matthew 10, 37 to 39, same message, slightly different words. 
He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he does, who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. So, Jonathan, there's a, there's a matter of degrees here. And this is what you were referring to by when you said the definition is by the extension love less. Who does yes. not love his father, he who loves his father or mother more than loving me is not worthy of me. So that's a big difference. It is. And also it reminds me of Ephesians six twelve. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. So obviously he's not saying to hate them. Right. So the question then remains, why did he use such harsh language? And I think the answer is because discipleship is hard. Mm-hmm. He is about to explain that discipleship is hard. Discipleship is not what you may think it is. Discipleship is not, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to be doing a lot of imaginary paraphrasing here, okay? This is, this, right. is, this is inside the imagination of Rick as he's looking at the life of Jesus. Jesus may be thinking, look, discipleship is not following me around, getting hungry, and then letting me feed you. Follow me around, seeing people get healed and getting inspired. That's not what it is. You have to understand there is a deep, hard, important cost. So he says this at, before he even explains it so that only those who are truly interested in what Jesus has to say are going to want to be sticking around. Because, you know, if you're looking for the free food, after saying that, you're thinking, well, there's probably no meal here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, darn, I missed the meal. So it, it, it is a way to, to get to those who are most important because he's looking for a specific calling to fulfill that at this point. So no, Jesus isn't saying to hate your family. He's saying it's a matter of perspective, loving me more than everything else, me meaning uh, Jesus. So Jesus now doesn't stop there. I mean, you'd think that's enough extreme language for one moment, right? Oh, it's heavy duty, yeah. Yeah, but there's more. He continues with the more extreme language of the cross. The cross was the epitome of torture and shame for their time. We think of the cross, we attach honor to it because Jesus hung there for us. Before Jesus hung there, there was no honor. No. It was just torture and shame. And here's what he says in the next verse. After he tells them to love your, to, to hate your father and your mother and your children and your brothers and your sisters and even yourself. Then he says in verse 27, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, think about that. When he says to them, carry your own cross, what, what's the image that they're getting in their minds, Jonathan? You're carrying it to your death. Right. And it's to a torturous, shameful, humiliating death. Again, why, if you're trying to attract attention, you want to attract followers, why would you use language like this? And you will be detestable to all those around you. Right. Right. Wow. So, so step right up for this. <laughs> but see, this is why Jesus used that language, because discipleship is blessed through trial. And if they, those who wanted to follow and really learn, couldn't absorb 
the difficulties, they could never get to the blessings. So Jesus had drawn a line in the sand. The entrance fee to discipleship is willingness to carry a cross. That's a pretty high entrance fee. Oh, yeah. This is serious, Rick. Yeah, it's serious. And again, it has to do with degrees. So even before he starts teaching about what discipleship is, He's giving them a sense of how hard discipleship is. And, and you look at this and you say, wow, you know, I don't want to be that. And, you know, maybe you don't. And maybe it's not for you. See, discipleship is as a result of being called of God for a specific purpose. It's not being called, it's not getting an invitation to a party. Okay, big difference between the two. So, bottom line, Jonathan, here and now, however we cut it, Discipleship was not painted to be an easy road for anyone to take. You're right. It is anything but easy. With the harsh realities of following Jesus in place, what was next for those who would follow him? We've been studying scripture and discussing how biblical history collides with world history in today's culture for 20 years on radio and in podcast channels. If you're curious about how the Bible or Christianity applies to what you have faced and are facing right now in your life, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Listen live or on your own time, then reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. To begin his description of discipleship, Jesus chose to use language that would sift out the crowd. He was not interested in gaining followers for the sake of creating an impressive-looking group. Rather, he was focused on gaining followers for the sake of the mission. Nothing else mattered. And see, that's the thing we have to get into our minds, is that this was bigger than just, hey, follow me, we're going for a walk. Because too often we look at discipleship as, hey, follow Jesus, he's going for a walk, and he said you can come. It's going to be blessed, and you know, you'll feel good, uh, you'll be fed, you'll be cared for, it's all great. This is not what he was saying. No, so this is a mission, too important. So, so, so what's our first primary discipleship lesson? Because remember, the question is, what does discipleship cost? What's the first lesson? To become a disciple is to elevate Jesus and his cause above all else and to be willing to suffer for that elevated cause. All right. It's elevating his cause above all else. That's why the hard language, he who does not hate his father and mother and and family, and really mean put them on a lower level than he, elevating the cause above all else if we're not willing to do that, then discipleship is not for us. And again, Jonathan, this might sound almost hard and shocking, like, what do you mean? You know, Jesus is love, right? God is love, right? Jesus is God's son, so what do you mean? Well, look, this is what he was talking about. This is it the takes a lot of sacrifice, and he was laying it out. And that's the beauty of it, is that it was a lot of sacrifice, and he's not... He's not hiding behind it. He's showing it to you right up front. Now, remember the the soundbite we started with from Create a Culture of Selflessness from uh, James Chapman. What were 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 those words that he yelled right at the beginning? It was, pick them up. That's right. And he's talking about a teammate on a basketball team. So let's kind of see where that theme came from 
and uh, how, how it changed this particular team. But there was a problem with this team. We were more concerned individual success rather than the success of the team as a whole. So we started off losing and losing pretty bad. So coach said this, here's what I'll do. I will create a culture of selflessness. I'll make them play for each other. So if any man falls down from a screen, any man lays the ball up and falls out of bounds, any man hits the deck for any reason, no matter where you are, you run and you pick him up. Like that, we got it. We realize maximize our potential. If we were going to win, which was the most important thing, we had to be selfless. We had to put the man next to us, ahead of us. And there's a, a beautiful lesson in that. If we were going to win, we had to be selfless. We had to put the man next to us, ahead of us. Pick him up. So more important than anything else was the well-being of your teammate. And that changed that team. And this, and this, this, this low-level school achieved high-level things and set some, some NCAA records or, or, or leading statistics for the year because of this very specific principle. Pick him up. So we want to follow that theme through our conversation about discipleship because, Jonathan, discipleship is not just me following Jesus. It's me following Jesus alongside of you and you following Jesus alongside of me. And the fact that it's not just me and Jesus, it's Jesus and us. And there's a power, a power in that. So our theme context and the first of the three primary aspects of discipleship is, is what? The first, the first, there's three things we want to really focus on. What's the first one? Well, Rick, number one, count the cost. Okay, simple. Count the cost. And, you know, that's a, that's a simple thing that in this world, uh, before we even get into it scripturally, is easily forgotten. You know, you go, to, um, you go to buy a car or you go to buy a house or you go to buy a college education and we, we see what we want. And we start to think, oh yeah, I can afford that. Oh, no problem. I can defer payments, great. You know, low interest rate, great. Payments on a car for 17 years, great. Not, I'm exaggerating, you know what I mean. <laughs> but, you know, we don't do enough counting the cost, and we end up in a lot of financial problems in the world in which we live because we're not counting the cost. Jesus took that principle and laid it out for disciples, those who were to be his disciples, right at the beginning. Luke 14, 28 to 30, a simple parable. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Okay, you want to build a tower, you sit down and say, how much money do I have? It's going to cost X, I have Y, that means I'm going to be owing Z. <laughs> not good. <laughs> you don't, you, in those days, you didn't build it if you didn't have the, the, the wherewithal to do it. Now that you've been warned of the difficulty of discipleship can bring, in the, in, the, in the first segment, we talked about, you know, uh, carrying the cross and all those things. You need to stop and think. 
This is something that so many churches, Jonathan, seem to totally, utterly ignore. Now, there's a potential reason that counting the cost might be ignored or downplayed in, in churches, okay? And part of the potential reason, we're going to go to the, the, the situation at Pentecost. Now, what, what was the, the context of Pentecost? Well, Jesus, after his, before his ascension, told all the disciples to stay in Jerusalem because he was going to give something special was going to happen. And this was the gift of the Holy Spirit, Rick. And uh, amazing things were going on. The disciples were speaking, and everyone heard in their own different language right. what, what the good news was about Jesus and him dying for them. And, and, and Peter took a lead role and just you know, pronounced to the people around, God's poured out the Spirit upon us. Uh, he, Jesus did not see any decay. God raised him, and we're witnesses. We, we saw him be raised to God. Um, Jesus is Lord in Christ, and he's at the right hand of God. I mean, this was so dramatic, Rick. It was, and, and what ended up happening is there was a mass conversion there, and we're going to go yes. through the scriptures, but there were 3,000 converted to Christianity. So you have this mass conversion there at Pentecost, and we think, as Christians today, we look at that and say, wow, they converted the whole group of them right then and there. We should be doing the same. Eh, should we? I mean, the parable says count the cost. What was the difference? Our, our, what we're saying is, no, we shouldn't be doing the same. So what's the difference between what they were able to do then and what we do now? Let's look at what they did then and break it down and see that it wasn't this mass conversion that we think it was, where you have the altar call and everybody comes running forward with their hands up saying, you know, I'm saved, I believe, I believe. That's not what happened at Pentecost. Let's look at it. Acts, 20, uh, Acts chapter 2. Verses 37 to 39, and then we're going to go to 41 and 42. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? So you have the, the crowd responding with a heartfelt reaction that because Peter had said, like you said, he laid it out to them. He was, didn't mince any words, said no, you, cru didn't. you crucified the Lord of glory, just letting you know that's what you did. They were pierced to the heart. These were Jews who knew of Jesus already. They were in the city where he had been crucified, what, 50 days before? Okay? This, this, less than two months ago, national news had the crucifixion of Jesus on the front page, if you will. Okay? And remember the darkening of the sky and the earthquake and the right. temple being rent? I mean, that was dramatic. They can't forget that. And there was three and a half years of experience seeing Jesus before that. So it's not like they were just hearing the name of Jesus for the first time. They had literally years of experience in their lives. So when it says that they were um, uh, pierced to the heart, it's because they had long experience. Let's go to verses 38 and 39 of Acts 2. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Okay, so each needed to repent and to be forgiven. Forgiveness was based on true repentance, not on lip service, okay? And they were in a great position to repent because they, like we said before, 
They knew about Jesus. They saw the character of the man. They heard the teachings of the man. They witnessed the miracles of the man. And through all of that, they understood who Jesus was. So they could, it was so easy for them to look at this and see the miracles in front of them saying, what a mistake we have made within our society. I got to fix myself. They also needed to be in line with the call of God. Uh, so th- that brings us to verse, uh, verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So it's interesting because it doesn't just say those that heard the word and they rejoiced. It says those that received his word didn't just hear it, they accepted it. And Jonathan, I will tell you that society back then was a little different than it is now. We think because we're an instant society, everything happens just like that. You know, snap of a finger. And, and when we communicate in this world, it's not like communicating back then. No, it's not. There was a quality, there was a, there was a depth to what it meant to receive his word. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So it talks about them devoting themselves afterwards to four different things. Not just saying, oh, I love Jesus, I'm saved, to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to truth, fellowship, to being together, the breaking of bed, to bread, to co-laboring together, working together, and to prayer, changing their lives and putting God first. So there was a transformation, not just an acceptance, not just a, oh, pick me, there was a depth of transformation at Pentecost, and that is not what happens when we do our altar calls and people come forward and say, I'm saved, and, 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 they, and they pray the sinner's prayer and all of that, and, and, and now you're good. No, 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 that's not discipleship. That might be a, a very basic, vague inter- in, in, introduction, but that is not discipleship. Good quote from Henry Miller. True strength lies in submission, which permits one to dedicate his life through devotion to something beyond himself. Submission, dedication, and devotion to something bigger. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about here. Back to the parable of Luke 14, we're up to verses 29 and 30. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So again, the parable is about building a tower. And Jesus starts out simply, who of you would be, and, and let, me, let me do a lot of Rick paraphrasing, who of you would be foolish enough to say, hey, I want to build this tower and have only half of the money necessary to buy the labor and the, and the materials to get it done? And so when you get halfway through, you've run out of money and now there's nothing else to do. Who would be that foolish? Because people are going to go by and say, <laughs> you see the tower Rick built? I mean, the tower Rick thought he was building? <laughs> you know, he's saying that's not what discipleship is. It's bigger than that. So, Jonathan, discipleship is more than just an internal decision. It's an external display as well. What may be some external consequences of making that decision immaturely without really thinking it through? Well, you may start off zealously, uh, but soon thereafter, you may not have the fruits of the Spirit showing. 
Worldliness takes first place instead of following scriptural principles. You make decisions that feel right to you, and that can be seen, and that's not good. But hopefully, the Lord can awaken you back to maturity through hard experiences. So what happens is the consequences of immaturity are not just your own inability to truly follow, but it's also an external advertisement of somebody who followed, who answered the call to Christ, but didn't really follow it. Yeah. Don't you remember Billy Bob over there? He was a Christian two weeks ago, but he sure <laughs> doesn't seem like one now. Yeah. He, he, he was all fired up a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. What or, happened? Or, or he gets all excited on Sundays, but by Thursday, he's the same old guy that we knew beforehand. Yep. That's not discipleship. And folks, let's not pretend that that is, because it's not. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's talking about counting the cost, knowing it's costly, knowing it's difficult, and then moving forward be out of what you know. So here's some more cost factors to consider a, a very well-quoted scripture, uh, Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. That means you're about your father's business and nothing else. Another verse, 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20. This is from the Lamsa translation. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit because they belong to God. Who do they belong to? To God. You have been bought with a price. Discipleship is costly. Jesus is saying, count the cost. So what's our next discipleship lesson here? The cause of Christ is a life-altering, eternal decision which cannot be embarked upon without adequate, honest, and mature consideration. Count the cost so you can be prepared. And, you know, one of the important things, Jonathan, is not to rush the decision of discipleship. Don't say, I feel like I love God so much, I'm just going to burst. Well, that's nice. That's really nice. But that's not what discipleship is made of. Discipleship is made of the longevity of living for God through Christ every day of your experience. And, Rick, based on these... um discipleship lessons, an obvious thing hit me as I was studying for this. Infant baptism is not appropriate based on these lessons. There's got to be maturity, a decision, know what the cost is so that you can choose to give it your all or say, it's not for me. How can an infant do that? And an infant can't. And you're right. So and another subject, but a really important point to illustrate that Jesus is saying, this is hard work that I'm asking you to do. It's, it, look, there's great blessing. But to get to the blessing, Jesus is saying, be willing to go through and to do the hard, hard work. So, so far it seems like we've been doing all our pregame preparation. We have, and it's about to start. Once we know the level of cost to discipleship, what is the next primary aspect of following Jesus? Before we turn the page, 
We wanted to tell you about CQ Rewind. It's a free weekly service provided by our great team of contributors who help the guys prepare for each episode. It's an in-depth look at their research, scripture, and much more, showing you the map of Rick and Jonathan's content journey. Now let's continue finding out the better answers as we ask the better questions. It's fascinating to see Jesus build his picture of true discipleship. He begins with words of discouragement to thin the crowd. He then told them to not be emotional regarding the call of God, but instead to be careful and thoughtful. His next parable goes beyond the decision stage and into the practical stage of living a discipleship-driven life. So it's interesting, Jesus really thins out the crowd, says harsh, harsh, hard things. Then he gives a parable that says, you're going to have to think this through. You're going to have to be mature about it. You're going to have to be, in some ways, business-like. And, and you know, that fascinates me because Christianity is sold, if you will, as emotional. And Jesus himself is saying, no, 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 it's much more business-like because it is a lifelong dedication to something that's hard and difficult and so much higher. Another good quote. Some great quotes that we're going to be going through uh, this week. This is from M. Scott Peck. A life of total dedication to the truth also means a life of willingness to be personally challenged. All right. Willingness to be personally challenged. That is something... A disciple of Christ. You know, a disciple, and maybe we should have done this at the beginning, we didn't, sorry, my fault. But, you know, what's a disciple? A disciple is a follower. When you are discipling, you are following somebody, you're looking at them, you're watching them, you're learning from them, you're absorbing their words, you're watching and emulating their actions because you want to be like them. That's what a disciple is. So the idea here is to have that dedication to, and willingness to be challenged because to be like something that we're not naturally, ah, that's, that's tough stuff. <laughs> it takes a lot of work. So the second of the three primary aspects of discipleship, the first one was count the cost. What's the second one? Now the challenges of discipleship. All right, we've got to know what the challenges of discipleship are. You've got to know them. Let's go back to create a culture of selflessness. This is James Chapman, former college basketball player, where he talked about this concept of picking up your teammate, and that was the most important thing, and how the coach transformed the team by doing that. Now, what Mr. Chapman did, Jonathan, is he took that principle, he grew into adulthood, he lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee, still does, and he decided to take the principles of teamwork that that coach in college taught them and bring it to the city of Chattanooga, okay? And so he took these principles and sought to help transform the city into a better place. This is a great, a fascinating and inspiring story. What if we created a culture of selflessness. What if the city did that? How big would that be, right? Think about it. Anybody ever see that movie, Talladega Nights? Have you ever seen Talladega Nights? Ricky Bobby, Shake and Bake. Woo! I love that movie, right? Love it. Ricky Bobby had one main concept. If you're not first, exactly. If you're not first, you're last. But I believe when it comes to the city, it's the complete opposite. I, or, I think in order to be first, you'd be last. 
You put the people who you work with, the people who you mentor, the people who are your friends, you put them ahead of you. It's like that old saying goes. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, you take others with you. I love it. You want to go fast? Okay, you can go it alone. But you want to go far, it's a team effort. And the idea is be last because put those around you first. That And Jonathan, if you want to look at an example of somebody who did that, just look it into Jesus' eyes. And you see that living example of putting others always, always first. That, and that's what we're discipling towards. Let's not kid ourselves. This is no easy thing. Once you've counted the costs and moved forward, you're now required to meet the challenges. So on we go now to the second parable. Remember the first parable about building a tower and seeing if your budget can handle what the tower is going to cost. What, let's go to the second parable, Luke 14, 31 to 33. We'll just do verse 31 right now. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Okay, a pretty simple story. Two kings going to have a battle. One guy's got 10,000, the other guy's got 20, and the king that's got 10 says, okay, I've got a battle here. And I'm outmanned. What should I be doing with this? So Jesus' story indicates a really serious challenge to to be met on the battlefield. Okay, He's using this battle picture because he's saying this is serious stuff. Now here again, we're not shown an emotionally flailing attitude. Rather, we're shown a clear-minded and confident battle assessment. You know, it's not the king going, Oh no, what do I do? What do I do? Too many men. There's not a panic. He's saying, when a king sets out to meet another, he will not first sit down and think it through. This, again, clear-minded and confident battle assessment. Let, let's go to another scripture to enhance this. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13, because this is, discipleship, face it, is a battle. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Okay. Be strong, not in yourself, but in the Lord. And again, that really does fit with uh, James Chapman's uh, thoughts of, of pick him up. Pick up your, 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 fellow, your, your, your fellow teammate there. You got to be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil because you're strong in the Lord, not strong in yourself. Go ahead, next verse. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So in our struggle, in our discipleship, Jonathan, what, what, what are we fighting? We're fighting Satan and his deceptions everywhere. And they can come from those that profess spirituality and could be leading people the wrong direction. We have to be very careful. So the battle that we're fighting is, is against something that is way bigger than we are. Absolutely. Way stronger than we are. Yep. Way smarter than we are. You got it. So why do we fight the battle then? <laughs> well, let's look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Okay, so our strength and confidence clearly come from above. Following Jesus 
brings us to winnable battles, no matter what the odds may look like. But it's not just showing up, Jonathan. You know, it's said at the beginning, be strong in the Lord, put on the whole armor of God. Just quickly, what, what is this armor? What does this armor quickly look like? Well, gird your loins with truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, shod your feet with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is God's word, and including prayer. So all of those things are the armor that we're supposed to be armed with. And, you know, we, we've done podcasts on the armor of God. And, and just one point on the armor that I think is just so important and it really fits with the pick him up thing that we're, we're using as a theme. The shield in the armor, the shield of faith, is not that little round shield that you wear on your arm. That's, that's called a buckler, actually. The shield is this big two foot by three foot kind of almost door sized shield that is big enough to hide behind. And when I put my shield on the ground and you put your shield on the ground next to me and then somebody behind us puts their shield over us, we protect each other with our faith. Great picture. It is. It's a powerful picture of what, how we're supposed to be armed and how, how disciples are supposed to be working through this together. So it's not just me and Jesus. I know a lot of us like that because, you know, it's me and Jesus and who cares about anybody else? No, 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 no. It's me and Jesus and everybody else he called and my responsibility to be on the battlefield with them together so that we can win the battles together because this is not one-on-one. This is us against Satan and we follow Jesus while we're armed. So Back to the parable now. You've got this king that meets this other king, that's going to meet this other king in battle. He's sitting down and considering, I've got half the number of men. What should he do? Verse 32. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Okay, so in this parable, in this story, he says, you know, the king who doesn't have enough men you know, might say, you know what, I don't think I want to go to war here because we don't stand a good chance of winning. Let me go see if we can, you know, cut a deal. So here, here's the question. Is this part of the story referring to cutting a deal with the adversary, with Satan, or is it more of a lesson on understanding and choosing your battles? Well, no, it's not about cutting a deal with the adversary. And Rick, this is a parable. We aren't kings and we're not literally going to fight a battle. Right. Okay. okay. <laughs> now, it's... A knowing the challenge of discipleship example, just like the tower going to war without preparation would be disastrous. The battle in Christ are three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The armor of God will protect us if we keep it on. Right. And, you know, we have to choose the kind of battles that we are capable of fighting within the context of discipleship. You know, it's not for those of us who, who don't have the ability to, um, I don't know, to, to speak in public, to go do that as a representative of Christ. But maybe if you don't have that ability, you can support those who do. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of ways to decide how I can contribute in my discipleship to the cause of Christ. And oftentimes my contribution might be helping you. And, that's right. And so that's part of the, the, the teamwork aspect here. So you're right. It's not cutting a deal with Satan. So that's not what this parable is teaching. Let's make sure we understand that. What it's saying is be careful, think it through, know the challenges. There are battles to be fought. Sometimes there are battles you walk away from or you walk around, and other battles you're going to fight right, you know, head on with the armor of God on. 
back to the parable and verse 33 to wrap it up. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So the parable is wrapped up and Jesus is essentially saying, you've got to give everything up. Now he's not saying walk around destitute. What he's saying is your attachment has to be to me. Remember early on, you hate mother and father and all that. That was about too much attachment and having attachment to higher things first. You've got to be unattached to earthly things and have Jesus first. And it reminds me, Rick, of stewardship. Yes. When we give our life to the Lord, he gives us back everything that we have, and now we're using it differently than we ever have before. Now it's for the Lord's cause. Right. So what we have, how can we serve the Lord with what we have? Right, right. Instead of how can I serve me, it's how can I serve the cause of God through Christ. Good. Excellent, excellent point. And you know what? This next soundbite really kind of fits with that. We're going back to James Chapman and creating a culture of selflessness. And he talks about how this all gets started. And there's an obvious answer to it, but it, it needs to be said. Well, first it starts with leadership. Because if Coach Gillespie wasn't the most selfless person on the team in the organization, the players would have never bought in. Doesn't work like that. He first had to be selfless. And I'm going to tell you something about Coach. He treated all of us equal. He treated the quote-unquote star players the same way that he treated the guy sitting at the end of the bench who never got much playing time. All equal. And there, there's great power in that. He, he, he treated them equally, which means he didn't have favorites, but he allowed them all to be their role players. You know, we all play different roles, and that's part of this, and that's part of the leadership Jesus gave us, and that's part of the leadership we require to try to give to one another. So Jesus, in this parable now, saying, you know, you have to give up all your possessions, he seems to be summing up all that he has taught us thus far. He said, discipleship will take you over your life, he said the cost of discipleship needs to be need, the cost of discipleship needs careful consideration and the battles of discipleship cannot be taken lightly. Now last segment we quoted Romans 12:1, you know, beseech you therefore to be uh, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Romans 12:2 obviously follows Romans 12:1, but it's a next important discipleship lesson. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So this really kind of fits in my mind uh, very well along the lines of this, this particular parable about considering if you're strong enough to fight this particular battle. It says, you know, the renewing of your mind so that you might, be, might prove what the will of God is. He's saying, you know, you've got to be able to think. You've got to be able to observe. You've got to be able to learn. You've got to be able to apply. That's what discipleship is. It's not just feeling good about Jesus on Sunday. It's not saying I've been saved and I've got this warm feeling running through my veins. That's beautiful. And that's, you can appreciate that. But that's not discipleship. As a matter of fact, Jonathan, that's not even a sign of discipleship. What that's a sign of is somebody who had an adrenaline rush. Honestly, and folks, I, you know, I don't want to take the, 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 the wind out of anybody's sails, but let's be realistic. Jesus is talking about something that's difficult here. I mean, think about the difficulty, the Apostle Paul. Here's a guy who we see pushed through everything and just lived a life selflessly. 
let's look at how he kind of sums up some of those experiences in Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, he said, I press on, and I press toward the goal for the prize. The interesting thing about that, Jonathan, the word for press is the same word used for persecute, which means to pursue or follow after. You know, and, that, and that's interesting. When, when you persecute, you're, literally it means to be in hot pursuit of. So when, when, when the apostle says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the high calling, he's saying, I'm in hot pursuit. I am staying on it. I will not stop. And that's the cost of discipleship. That's focus. <laughs> it is. That pressing hard and deeply. So, so what's, what's our discipleship lesson from this particular parable of the king who's got to decide if he's got enough men to go fight a battle? A disciple's life battles will be formidable and require scriptural and decisive action to win. So it's not just, you know, having, having to make a decision. It's making a decision, and, and you said it before, Jonathan, when you talked about stewardship. It's making a decision based on godliness. Where do we get the very best example of godliness? Jesus. Right, and where do you get the whole life of Jesus? In the in Bible. The Don't think that you're going to get it through all these other places. Those other places may be good, and they may be helpful, but the Scriptures are our primary source. A disciple's life uh, life battles will be formidable and require scriptural, decisive actions to win. So, this, this following Jesus thing really is all about getting outside of yourself. It is pretty clear cut. Following Jesus is simple, but that does not mean it is easy. What more must a disciple give? There's a lot of talk program topics out there. If you're burnt out on Capitol Hill and Trump, don't worry, we never go there. But if you're looking for unique ways to look at the Bible, we'll make you think about how today's world ties into Scripture like you've never thought about before. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. Jesus is here telling us harsh realities in story form that make those realities easier to absorb. Clearly, his focus in these parables is the thinking that begins and maintains a disciple's journey. Jesus is telling us that our minds must rise to new levels of spiritual maturity and spiritual reliance. There is no mincing words here. He's saying, think higher, act higher, be higher, because that's what discipleship requires. Another quote from... uh, (laughs) Interesting quote from Cecil B. DeMille. What a great, great, great uh, producer from way back. Most of us serve our ideals by fits and starts. The person who makes a success of living is the one who sees his goal steadily and aims for it unswervingly. That is dedication. And it's such a great quote because too many of us serve our ideals in fits and starts. You know, and and you think about folks that... um, and folks, maybe this relates to you, maybe it doesn't, but have you ever had to make the same New Year's resolution several years 
<laughs> I'm sure many would say yes. <laughs> okay. And what does that tell you? Okay, fits and you starts. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we get excited, we get emotional, we get focused, and then we let our guard down. Jesus is telling us discipleship where we got to go, we got to be stronger. It's something bigger than just that decision that can fade away again. It's something so much bigger. So, you know, we talked about counting the cost. We talked about um, knowing the challenges of discipleship. What's the third primary aspect of discipleship that Jesus is going to bring to us in this next parable? Well, Rick, the third is know the expected growth and results of discipleship. Okay. Know the expected growth and results of discipleship. Where does it bring you? What comes to you as a result of discipleship? And this third parable may not even sound like a parable, but it is a word lesson that gives us powerful, powerful meaning. Luke 14, verses 34 and 35. Let's just do 34 right now. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? Okay. So he's talking about something as simple as salt. Therefore, okay, when he says therefore, what he's saying is, go back to the things I just said, put them together, and here's a conclusion for you. Because you now see the lessons regarding the training of your minds, it helps you to become salty. It's like, wait, what? Become salty? Really? Yes, really. Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. It's it's a strange saying, you are the salt of the earth. Because when you think about it, salt, first of all, is incredibly common. Sure. I mean, when you go to to the the grocery store to buy a, a big container of salt... It's one of, per pound, it's one of the cheapest things you're going to buy in that entire store. (laughs) You're right. Okay, so it's really common and really inexpensive. So salt, it has several functions, Jonathan. What are are some of the functions of salt? Well, Rick, it enhances flavor. It's also, uh, it preserves. And um, it's a necessary uh, sacrificial commodity for, um, remember in the law, they used, they sacrificed and put things on the altars, and they had to add salt to those. Yeah, so uh, that's a strange thing. So let's go it through is. those again, and then we'll, we'll read a scripture on that in a minute. But salt enhances flavor. I mean, eat an egg, and then eat an egg with a little salt on it. And boy, what a difference. I, to, I love eggs with salt. Without <laughs> salt, forget about it, okay? <laughs> salt preserves, especially in those days. Soldiers were paid with salt, And if it's such a common thing, why were they paid with salt? Because they're always on the road and they could preserve their meats for a long time. So salt was a really important aspect to to their life. You know, and that's where the phrase comes from, are you worth your salt? Are you worth your pay? Because salt was such an impressive um, preservative. And like you said, it was a necessary sacrificial commodity as well. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13 is a really good example of that. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. 
And God goes so far as to say that if you don't offer it with salt, the offering is not acceptable. Good point. So so salt was really important in the ancient world. It still is today, but flavor, preservative, and for sacrifice. So whatever this meaning of salt is, when it says you are the salt of the earth, that's a great compliment because salt has so many important, important functions. And I was thinking, Rick, salt is good. It's like a, a healthful cleansing and a preserving element in a world full of moral decay and sinful pollution. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. And, and again, you know, just one of those little things like, you know, if you have, if your eyes are irritated, what do you do? You mix a little salt water, warm yeah. salt water, you wash them out, and it's so soothing. And it, and it works wonders. So, you know, I, I mean, salt is powerful, very plentiful, but very powerful. Now, all of that, again, we're talking about discipleship, and we're using this basketball example from James Chapman talk, Create a Culture of Selflessness, and he talked about leadership, and he's talking about changing the city of Chattanooga by applying the principles of selflessness, and pick him up, pick up your teammate, and he's going back to the basketball analogy for one other aspect. Remember, they led the league in scoring, and they led the league in steals, and, and all kinds of things like that. Well, there's another aspect that really solidifies the teamwork that he's talking about here. What else? See, I told you guys that we led the nation in scoring, and we also led the nation in offensive rebounds and steals, but I ain't trying to brag. (laughs) But what I didn't tell you guys is that we led the nation in assists. Nobody was ball hogging. We shared the ball. We put each other in positions to score and to be successful, and everybody had that mindset, right? has to work the same way for the city. We've got to pass it on. I love that. You know, and, and you know, I, I, I like to watch basketball to a degree. Uh, sometimes it, it gets to me because I really love the teamwork aspect of basketball. And, uh, I, and, and to a fault. I mean, if a team is not a, a, a teamwork-oriented team, I have no interest. But there's certain teams I like to watch because, and what I watch is I sit there and I watch how many people touch the ball before it gets shot. And, wow. and, and, I, watch the, and I watch the selflessness and the setting of the pick and the pick and roll and how they move together as a unit. And I am impressed by that. And that is such a great example of discipleship because it's not about how many points I get. It's about can we win if I give you the opportunity to score the points, do I care if you score all the points? Hope not. Just we got to win. And, and, you know, discipleship requires that kind of, of sacrifice, that kind of effort together. So it really is a team sport, discipleship in Christ. It really, truly is. It's not just me and Jesus. So, Jonathan, we talked about salt being an enhancement of flavor, a preservative, a necessary sacrificial commodity. There's one other thing in Scripture that salt was known to do, and what was that? It's a separating uh, agent in the refining process. So in the refining process of gold, the way you got the gold to separate from the elements of the earth is you had to put it in the right fire and the right temperature, but you had to have salt mixed in with the gold ore. Without the salt, the ability to separate the gold from the other elements is dramatically hindered. The, the, the sodium chloride in the salt 
drew the gold out of the earthly elements. Refiners want pure gold. They only got that if they used salt. And that's why I think, because it was such a common thing in refining in those days, Mark 9, 49, and 50 makes so much more sense now that you understand the refining picture. Go ahead, Jonathan. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Everyone will be salted with fire. So in other words, the purification process of the gold of God's spirit working in us, we have to have enough salt. So when we look at salt as being this enhancement of flavor and preservative and the sacrificial commodity and the agent of separation and the other things that, that you had mentioned as you know, being healthy and so forth. So I, to me, salt directly refers to the strength and focus of our character. That's what it represents when, it's, when, when, when Jesus says in Matthew 5, back to that scripture, you are the salt of the earth. He's saying the strength and focus of your character is what's there to preserve the earth. That is a powerful element in the earth. So Jesus is telling us, be salty. Submitting ourselves to being in line with the pattern of Christ, because that's what Jesus did, so that the Holy Spirit can accomplish its work in us. And Jonathan, that's the point, isn't it? The point is the Spirit has to accomplish its work in us. We don't need to accomplish our work with it. That's right. Absolutely. Okay, sometimes we get it backwards. You know, God has given me his Spirit, so, and God wants me to be blessed. So God give me, gave me his spirit, so I'm sure he's going to give me that car that I wanted, too. You know, no, no not yeah. even remotely close. And, and, and really, Jonathan, we laugh, but it's not even funny. Because you're taking this serious element of discipleship, and we're watering it down to nothingness by making it part of, the, of earthly things. James, uh, James 2.18. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So it's not just a matter of feeling and believing. Now with James, he's saying, you got to do the, do the work that's required. And, and that's what these parables have really told us, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So we, We're accountable. We have to follow through. We have to do what the Lord puts before us. And... And, you know, and that's, that's a simple statement, but that is such a powerful statement because, you know, you said we have to do what the Lord puts before us. How many times do we have maybe the opportunity put before us on a spiritual level? We say, well, yeah, I really don't want to do that. And we don't give it a whole lot of thought and we move on to something else that's more, I don't know, more convenient, more comfortable. Comfortable, yeah. <laughs> that's not being, that's not fulfilling the discipleship. So that simple statement of we have to do what the Lord has put before us. Discipleship says he put it there. That's my job. Stewardship, like you talked about before. Stewardship brings us there. Okay. So again, what happens when salt isn't salty? Well, verse 35 of this little tiny parable of Jesus tells us from Luke 14. It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So if the salt isn't salty if it doesn't if it's lost its power and its ability to enhance flavor to preserve to be that sacrificial commodity to draw the gold out if it's lost all of that 
then you know what? It's just all it's worth is walking over. It's just it's it's got no no value left. So so Jonathan, what is Jesus telling us the result is if we don't develop the necessary strength and focus of character to go along with our discipleship opportunities? Well, Rick, uh, we will be thrown out, good for nothing, <laughs> castaways from God's favor versus having the preservative power to draw the good qualities of those around us. So it's a choice. And, and, and you know, Jonathan, we've been really focusing on the labor and the challenge of discipleship. And the reason we're really focusing on that side of it is because that's the side that doesn't get ever looked at. It's not thought about, it's not talked about, because we would rather talk about, I feel blessed today. And that's good. And I applaud feeling blessed today. And I hope you feel blessed tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after. But the question is, what's the work that is laid before you of God through Christ that you are doing for that blessing? Or is that blessing just a feeling, not resulting from something that is godly in our efforts? Got to do the work. So, we started with a couple of segments ago, Romans 12.1, mercies of God, present your body a living sacrifice. Then we went to Romans 12.2, be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now let's go to Romans 12.3 as we look at knowing the expected growth and results of discipleship. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So this is a great equation. As you're reading it, it's dawned, dawned on me. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but think so as to have sound judgment. So you can think of yourself high enough to the point where your judgment is still sound. If you start to get, <laughs> okay, if you start to get all about, hey, I'm pretty good, that's not such sound judgment anymore. Abort, no. abort. You know, <laughs> get off of that path. That's what he's saying. We need to keep ourselves humble because we're given that measure of faith in order to execute the work and, uh, of discipleship. So our, our discipleship lesson based on knowing the expected growth and results of discipleship is what? The focus we have gained within our minds towards discipleship is only as valuable as the character with which it is displayed. Now remember, salt is the character. So we can have the focus of our minds and we can say, okay, I get what discipleship is. I get the concept of following in Jesus' footsteps and of putting Jesus first all the time and, and putting everything else aside. I understand that and intellectually, I am sound on that. The question is, has our character revealed what we know inside of our heads and our hearts? Because Jonathan, if our character is not revealing it, we're not salty enough. We have not been put into a position where we are changed enough so that others can look and say, hey, there's something different about that guy, Jonathan. The way he walks, the way he talks, what he looks like, how he works, what's important to him, he's different. That's the salty character coming out that can be a representation of Jesus. What a beautiful example of discipleship. So, when you think about it, uh, following Jesus is really all about becoming a mini-Jesus on every level. 
That's about right. And that is difficult. What is the most important thing we can learn and apply from this whole discipleship experience? We're uncovering the truth scripture by scripture while gathering information from across today's media landscape with our vast CQ team of contributors. We want to hear from you, our listeners, for more contribution to our conversations. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com or message us through the Christian Questions app and our producers may read your comments over the air. Let's continue working through our topic with all our tools. We're reviewing the evidence. Now let's put it together. Let's remember that discipleship is a process in which those who follow are truly trying to become like he who leads. Because our relationship with Jesus is described as a unified body, we can qualify this whole undertaking as that body banding together for the purpose of accomplishing God's will. That's discipleship. It's not just about me. I don't know how many times I'm going to say that, but I'm hoping that that can begin to resonate. It's not about me and Jesus. That's important. But what's even more important is the role that I play in relationship to those around me who are walking the same walk. And what a privilege, Jonathan, you think about it. It is. I mean, the scripture, forsake not the assembling of thyselves together. Yeah. Um, we need to be together to encourage, uplift, and and share our experiences so we can all gain strength and, and serve the Lord better. And it's not even, and we're going to get into this in this segment, it's not even just about being together in fellowship, but it's about finding ways to work together, to co-labor, because that's a deeper level. And then you're, you're, you're putting out the sweat alongside of your brother and or sister or both, and there's something really valuable there. One last time, let's go to James Chapman. I love this guy. I love his thoughts on selflessness and pick him up and, 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 and working together and keeping others to be more important than yourself. His talk was create a culture of selflessness. And uh, again, he's talking about that selfless attitude, especially in relationship to the city that he was looking to help to transform, the city of Chattanooga. So what else? You got to pick him up. That's the whole point of this thing, right? Yeah, it starts with leadership, and we put great programs into place. Yeah, we start passing it on, and we're sharing knowledge and resources, and and we're coming together as a community. But what about those underprivileged neighborhoods? What about the homeless? What about the at-risk youth? See, it's real easy for us to just sweep them into little corners and pockets of the city and hope the tourists don't see them when they come into town can be easy to do that. It's hard to pick them up, to uplift them out of those situations that they're in so when the tourists come into town, we don't have to sweep them into little pockets of the city. You got to pick them up. And that's such a great example. You got to pick them up. Now, you know, and, and, and within the body of Christ, Jonathan, it's the same thing. You know, because everybody doesn't have the same level of talent and or opportunity as everybody else. That's right. And, and I, you, you and I both know in, in the privilege that we have been given to be able to talk together like this for years and years and years about the gospel, this does not happen just because you and I decide we're going to have a conversation. That's true. <laughs> this happens because there are so many others who behind the scenes do all kinds of work that you and I could never, ever do. And I'm talking never, ever. 
You got that right. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, and so it's the opportunity of working together and taking those that have different kinds of talents and just pulling the resources because that's what discipleship is. So we're moving from discipleship lessons to actual living and being disciples. So now this final segment is discipleship applied. And our first discipleship applied scripture we're going to look at is Romans chapter 12 again. We did verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, now verses 4 and 5. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Okay, discipleship applied in the picture of the body that you just read is what? Well, discipleship applied within a body means that my following of Jesus will be different than yours. And that's a, we're all unique. And that's all, a good thing. That is a good thing. And the fact that you and I are different is actually good. Can you imagine if there were two of me doing this? This would be terrible. <laughs> you, you wouldn't get a word in Edwards. <laughs> <laughs> but see, that's the beauty of it. You know, and, and you know, one of the things, just, just take, take a quick moment, Jonathan, because it's I really deeply appreciate the way you describe your role so often when people ask about you know what we do what 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 do you say well i I say I'm a harmony man and i I've always been a harmony man with singing I was a tenor uh, um, and I always think of my role as trying to enhance and lift up and encourage you to bring out your strengths and I can add my little parts here and there to, to, to make it all fit together. I, I, I don't know. Well, but, but see, I do know. And, and what I know is that the sum of you plus I and this opportunity is one thing. But, you know, when you, the, the effort gets multiplied by the willingness to work together and take whatever we each can bring to the table, as well as, oh, I don't know, the other 25 or 30 individuals <laughs> who yeah. volunteer their time. That's what makes something so valuable. So we who are many are one body in Christ. That's discipleship applied. So what's the common common denominator if so much uh, is different? Because my walk's different than your work. What is it? Well, Rick, every disciple must understand and accept suffering. All right. What is suffering? It means to experience a sensation or impression, usually painful. Okay. It means to experience a sensation or impression. Now, it says that it's usually painful, which means sometimes it's not. This is something we have to understand about suffering as we move forward. Before we get into that further, a quick quote from Sumner Davenport. Struggle ends where commitment begins. And, you know, discipleship requires that commitment. And it doesn't mean it won't be difficult. And it won't, it won't uh, wear you out, and, and you won't get discouraged sometimes. But instead of struggling with what, what am I about, that struggle ends because now we're committed to something bigger than ourselves. So we've got to understand suffering as a big part of discipleship. But suffering simply means to experience something. It doesn't necessarily have to mean pain. So let's go to our next discipleship applied lesson, and then we'll go to scriptures to back it up. Well, Rick, it means observing and understanding how Jesus needed to suffer. And you think about that and you say, wait a minute, wait, wait. Jesus needed to suffer? 
I mean, yes. wait, he, he needed, needed, needed to suffer. How the do you, scripture says that, Rick. Well, let's go to that scripture then. Hebrews 5, 8. Though he were a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Okay. Even though he was God's son, he still learned obedience by what he suffered. By what he, and, and instead of suffered there, I want to I substitute um, one of the words used in the definition. By, he learned obedience by the things which he experienced. Because suffering doesn't have to be painful from a scriptural standpoint. From the standpoint of our world now, when we say somebody is suffering, we're going, oh my goodness, that poor soul. Yeah, we always think it's, it hurts. Right. But scripturally, that is not the case. Suffering scripturally is bigger than when something just hurts. It is wider. It is, is deeper than something just hurting because it's your general experience of your discipleship. And Jesus did have to suffer, though. He did have to hurt. Uh, just one quick scripture on that before we get to some of the suffering for his sake and the experiences we go through. Matthew 16, 21, he is here he's telling his disciples about his own coming experiences. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Okay, so Jesus was saying, I am going to suffer. I am going to be going through experiences that will be extraordinarily painful. And not only were they painful for Jesus, Jonathan, but they were painful for everybody to watch even. That's how difficult those experiences were. And he says, they're going to kill me, but I'll be raised. And, you know, because God's got this under control. So Jesus wasn't suffering in the traditional sense of today's understanding every day of his life. He was sacrificing his own will every day. And in many cases, it was a joyful experience. It was experience being offered up every day of his life. And that brings up another point. You know, we talk about Christianity as a life of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Sacrifice doesn't have to be hurtful. It doesn't have to be, I'm giving it, oh, it's so painful to give. It could be one of the most joyful things of all. That's right. You know, and, and for me, Jonathan, just we were talking about Christian questions. One of the greatest, most fun sacrifices I get to offer is sitting here talking to you uh, <laughs> about the gospel. I mean, there's no better sacrifice than this. Oh, and, it's, it's great. And, and, and see, and the thing is, you say, well, then that's not a sacrifice. Well, yeah, it is because it's costly. Because there's time, there's effort, there's preparation, there's focus, there's dedication, there's all those things. But the, the, the offering of it is just such a great, great experience. And a lot of our sacrifices can be that joyful experience, and that's what Jesus showed us. So, Jonathan, what are the most important lessons we can glean from Jesus' personal suffering, be it actual sufferings or his experiences? Well, Rick, God's will was the most important thing to Jesus. He embodied love through and through. His mission was totally misunderstood, but he was okay with that because all the world would understand in the kingdom. Um, also, Rick, um, his suffering, um, his general experience um, is helping us to prepare for whatever the Lord requires for our Christian walk and to stand firm and hold high that banner of truth throughout all of our experience. 
Okay, so we can learn by just by by absorbing what he did was the first part of what you said. But then we can learn by applying what he did to our own experiences, by applying his attitudes, by applying his words, by applying his actions and saying, you know, uh, you, the, the, the old the bracelet thing, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Yes. Yeah, that's what discipleship Powerful. is. Just be that bracelet. Be the bracelet, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go on to our next discipleship applied lesson. We're just running out of time here. Well, it means that we must also suffer as we walk in Jesus' footsteps. Okay, and again, suffer can mean experience. It doesn't have to be harmful and harsh, but it's, it's, it's full of learning. Philippians one twenty nine. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Okay, now to suffer, to experience things for his sake, as well as to be hurt by things for his sake. Both of those are appropriate and good. Learning to suffer means learning to share each other's suffering. Okay, Uh, you know, and, and the thing about that, Jonathan, is, you know, Jesus isn't right in front of us. So, you know, for us to share in Jesus' suffering is a little bit um, uh, abstract. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. we can share in the suffering of one another much more easily. Absolutely. Because we can see and know and and talk with and and, and literally go through the experience with another. So Jesus may not be right in front of me, but you're right in front of me. The body of Christ. Right. So I can have the privilege of entering into your sufferings. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Pick them up. That's what that reminds me of. Yes. One member suffers, all suffer with it. If one falls down, everybody goes to get them. You know, that's what discipleship is. That's what it means to us. One more, uh, well, actually, there's two more. Two more discipleship applied lessons. What's the next one? Discipleship applied grants us the privilege of suffering for Christ a family trait. Okay, and that's the other beautiful thing about suffering for Christ, about being a Christian, is you're entering into a family that has a way of doing things. You know, families have traditions. And, you know, you know, my family, you know, you, you, you lived with my mom and dad for a while years ago, yeah. and, you know, we yeah. have the tradition Sunday dinner where we all go to my mom's house, and yeah. there's, there's certain parts of that dinner that are just part of, that are family traits. And, the, the family of Christ has those same things. Romans eight fourteen to 18. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption when we cry, Abba, Father. It is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So even if we were not born as children of, of, of God's chosen ones uh, from, from a Jewish heritage, it says you've been adopted into this family of Christ, and we can look at God and call him Daddy, Abba, Father. That's really what it means, that, that, that really close sense. And it's God's Spirit that draws us together as this family. And the Scripture goes on. So now that you're children, what happens from there? And if children, then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing 
with a glory about to be revealed to us. So there's a great sense of camaraderie and working together and suffering together. That's what discipleship is. And keep your eye on the prize, upward bound. Yeah, really, that's what it comes down to. I mean, there, there is something so big and powerful here that is so far beyond what you, you look at in terms of general causes. I mean, we were using the example of a, of a, of a man in, in, in basketball, and it paints a nice picture for us. But the depth of pick him up on a basketball court versus within the body of Christ, well, that's a totally different bigger game. It's the game for our lives and for the lives of the world, as a matter of fact. What's our final final discipleship applied lesson? Well, it's the transforming of our perspective to a heavenly one. Moments of self-sacrifice produce an eternity of a heavenly brotherhood. Moments of self-sacrifice. Moments. Because you know what? Our life is really a series of moments. And there's really not that many of them when you, when you compare them to eternity. Moments of self-sacrifice produce an eternity of heavenly brotherhood. So discipleship is about brotherhood. Discipleship is about many of us walking the walk and following in the footsteps of Jesus. It's not about just me. It's about the role that I have the privilege of playing along with those others who are walking that same walk. Folks, be a disciple in the truest, broadest sense of the word and contribute to the body of those around you, the body of Christ. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. It's a subject that is so, so very important. What does discipleship cost? It costs plenty, but boy, is it worth it. Think about it. Folks, we love... Um, we want to hear from you. We want you to give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, we'll be talking about our mercy and justice compatible. Talk to you next week. And remember, discipleship rules.